You're listening to the Broncos Audio Zone. Hello, and thank you for joining us here on the Broncos Audio Zone. I'm Phil Milani, joined as always by Eric Delilah, back with another great episode of Broncos Country Throwback. This week, joining Jim Sakamano is Stink. That's Mark Schlereth. Yeah, Phil, of course, Broncos fans probably know him from 104.3 The Fan, but he's joining us today on Broncos Country Throwback. Six years in Denver after starting his career in Washington, uh, made a Pro Bowl, was obviously a key piece of that offensive line when the Broncos won back-to-back Super Bowls. I'm excited to hear some stories from him. He's uh, as good a talker as anybody, Phil. And now let's uh, get to the conversation with Jim Sakamano and Mark Schleyer. Today on Broncos Country Throwback is Mark Schlereth, one of the greatest and I think most influential offensive linemen in Denver Broncos history. And Mark, you know, you've done a lot of interviews over the years and you can be a humble guy, but I ain't asking for humble today. I'm looking for straight stuff. (laughs) Well, I can do that. I can give it to you straight. Yeah, giving it to me straight is good. Your nickname for a long time has been Stink. And Whenever anybody's known as Stink, about two-thirds of the people are going to get the reasoning all wrong as to why. Could you explain, please? I know the answer, but could you explain the nickname Stink? Well, there's actually there's 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 actually two parts to that. Um, both are true. One's a really good story, and the other is is basically how it happened. And then the how it happened was my sister um, my sister taught at an Eskimo village in Alaska. And the village was called Akiachuk, Alaska. And Akiachuk, Alaska was on the Kuskokwim River. And the very first run of salmon during the, uh, during the summer season, the native people of the village would dip net the river, the Kuskokwim, and pull out thousands and thousands of fish. And this was a, you know, this was a kind of a rite of passage first, uh, you know, the, the first run of salmon during the season. And they would dig a huge pit Pre, uh, before they, they put the nets in the water, they dig this huge pit. And after they caught all these fish, they would cut the heads of the fish off and they would bury them in this pit. And then they would let those heads rot and ferment. And, and weeks later, they would dig them up and they would eat these rotten fish heads. And they called them stinkheads. Well, when I was drafted by the Redskins, I was telling this stinkhead story to some of my teammates. And I instantly, being from Alaska, got dubbed stinkhead. And so that's how I got the nickname Stink, but it was originally Stinkhead. And <laughs> I was playing a preseason game in uh, the nation's capital in 1990. And I had started in my rookie season, about halfway through my rookie season, I became a starter. And um, so it was my second year. So I was a starting offensive lineman for the Hogs, but I was the youngest player that was the starter. So I was also the first backup if anybody got hurt at center or either guard position. So I was out of the game. We had played three quarters because it was the third preseason game. And back then, Jim, you used to actually play in the preseason games, right? Right. So I played all three quarters, and I was standing on the sideline, and I really had to urinate. And um, so I was sitting on the bench on the sideline, and I'm joking around with the rest of the offensive linemen, and I just go ahead and I I release. I full bladder on the bench. You know, they're jumping up. They're like, oh, you're disgusting, you know, and I'm laughing. I thought it was funny. Well, I was the first guy up in case somebody got hurt. 
suddenly the game stops, somebody's hurt, it's the backup center. So Stan Humphreys comes running to the sideline and goes, stink, 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 I need, you know, let's get a practice snap. Like I had literally just emptied my entire bladder on the bench. So mm-hmm. I come running over there, I'm like sloshing over there, grab my helmet, put it on, and Stan gets behind me. And the quarterback never actually gets his hands underneath you until right before the snap. He always kind of puts a hand on a lower back and one on your butt cheek, you know, and lets you know he's back there, right? And he's blue 80, blue 80. And he goes, set hot. And as soon as he does that, he puts his hands in there. And I snap the ball, and it just sprays. I mean, just splashes him. And he is like, oh, my gosh, I got like, my hands are wet, my face. He's like, you know, somebody get a towel. Like, he's super sweaty. And I was like, you know, I was laughing because in all the offensive linemen were laughing. Like, that's not sweat. That's urine. And he didn't know. And, and so that was the inside joke. And I became, I went from being stinkhead to stink at that moment. And it, and it just stuck for the rest of my career. So um, I always left the equipment guys a little bit of urine in my pants on every game, just because you want to perpetuate the, uh, yeah, just because, yeah. just because those guys you are my know, friends and they, they need to deal with uh, putting on the rubber gloves before they picked up my uniform after games. And, and there's such a thing as making up a story. But since when has making up a story ever been as good as that? <laughs> yeah, well, it's now, not making up a story because it's 100% true. I know, <laughs> I know. Mark, you grew up in Alaska. How long did you live there? Until uh, I was 18, till I uh, packed my bags and went to the University of Idaho for the first time. So, uh, and you got a scholarship uh, to, you know, you, know, you get the scholarship to Idaho. You're a guy from Alaska. How'd that happen? Yeah, well, I, you know, I got I got scholarship offers to two places. So there's two teams that that recruited me really heavily. Well, all at the time was the Pac-10. So all the Pac-10 schools recruited me, but they all asked me to walk on. And, you know, in Alaska, I mean, I would play six or seven games would be my high school season. So you didn't have a lot of experience, right? And um, so I had all these Pac-10 schools basically asking me to walk on. Well, there were two schools that came up to run a football camp in the summertime. They came up to Alaska. One was Idaho and one was Hawaii. And at this football camp, you know, they could see that I had some athletic ability about me. And so those two schools actually uh, brought me out on recruiting trips, Idaho and Hawaii, and uh, both schools offered me scholarships. Um, and, you know, being from Alaska, and I thought this was a, a, like, for me, this was a, like, I thought it was a mature decision at 18 years old. I, I really looked at it hard. I thought two things, um, the two things that were my deciding factor. One, I honestly looked at going to Hawaii and being in the sunshine every day. I was like, I don't, I don't want to wake up. I'd, I'd like some snow. I'd like some, you know, I'd like some weather. I'd like some change of season. I grew up in Alaska. I don't know that I can wake up to sunshine every day, Jim. And then the other thing that I thought about is I looked at the athletes at Hawaii, who was, you know, Division One. It was a whack school at the time. And then I, I looked at the, the athletes at Division or at Idaho, which was one double A. And I really thought that I had a chance to come right in and play um, as a freshman. In, uh, at Idaho, and I didn't think I had that same opportunity uh, at the University of Hawaii. So those were the two deciding factors that made me choose the University of Idaho. Pretty good. Now, when you came to us, Mike Shanahan, one of the great free agent signings of all time, you came from the Washington Redskins where you'd already won a championship. You won two here. And one of the things you really had and the team had was literally an indomitable spirit. And I remember we're getting ready to go play um, Super Bowl 32 and with the meetings in Denver before we go to San Diego. And you brought in um, 
Well, you brought in your Super Bowl ring to show everybody, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was actually it was actually on our on our run during the season, and and I was I'm missing some time because I had back surgery um, after a Week 11 game against Kansas City, where I played the game with no feeling in in my feet because um, I had a herniated disc in my back, and and I had all kinds of pain shooting down my legs and all kinds of problems and. By the time I got to the game on Sunday, my feet had gone numb, and it was just – it was a mess. And um, I think it was my left foot that was completely numb. Anyhow, long story short, uh, I was on a plane, the, you know, the next day um, out to L.A., had back surgery. And um, and so I was out for a while. And while I was out, you know, we just – we had we'd slumped a little bit, not because of me, just as a team. You know, we had slumped a little bit and, and lost a game in Pittsburgh, lost a game in San Francisco, really weren't – playing up to our capabilities. And that's when I brought my ring in and, and essentially said, you know, there's you know, just some guys that were missing, you know, missing a little time or being late to a meeting or whatever the case may be. You know, I, I think attention to detail wasn't as good as it needed to be. And um, so I had approached Mike about addressing the team. I brought in a ring, you know, I brought in one of my rings and I just said, you know, it's unacceptable. When you're late to something, you're basically saying your, your time and your family's more valuable than my time and my family. And, you know, I mean, I just found it unacceptable. And if we're going to win and we got a chance to be great, you know, we need to, we need to sacrifice for one another. And that was kind of the, 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 the whole meeting in a nutshell. You know, at one point I said, I, I actually said this and the coaches are watching the film. I was like, Hey man, if, if Mike Shanahan has to make a tackle or a block, I said, you're going to need a smoke bomb to get him out of the locker room. And he's going to be standing in a puddle of piss. Like, like, were the Denver Broncos? Like, the co- hey, Mr. Ball, he owns the team, but he's not the Denver mm-hmm. Broncos, and the coaches aren't the Denver Broncos. We're the Denver Broncos. We're the ones that have to go out there and execute. And and that was kind of the gist of the message. Then a lot of guys got stood up, and Elway, and a lot of guys stood up and talked. And um, I just thought it was really – it was a really important aspect um, to to that championship season because I think, you know, it's such a grind, and we had lost to Jacksonville the year before – and you just see a few little things that are slipping and you know how good you are. You know, you, you've been there, you know how much of a chance you have to win. Um, and it was just kind of a redirection or a refocus to me that was important and, and glad I did it and glad, uh, you know, glad that uh, people responded the way they did. And, and we went on, you know, through a tough playoff battle um, as a wild card team to win a Super Bowl. It was fantastic. And, and that was a great show of leadership. You mentioned the surgery. Of course, your surgeries are legendary. I remember one late in your career, we were in training camp or about to go to training camp, and you had to have a knee surgery. I forget if it was a scope or what, mm-hmm. but we said, well, that's the end of Mark. Okay, that's the end of Schlereth. But you came back, and you immediately wanted to play, and I remember Mike held you out of the first preseason game because it was at Dallas on artificial turf, or he would have played you then. And because, like I've always said, who the heck's going to tell Mark Schlereth no? Anyway, you played the next week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I did that a lot. And I, I think, you know, part of that is uh, – part of that was it's just always the way that I was brought up is that um, the team comes first and the team is always more important than you are as an individual. And it's your responsibility um, – it's your responsibility as a player to to sacrifice for your teammates, to sacrifice for the organization. You know, I mean, I, I always looked at it like, hey, everybody within this organization to me is more important than me. And so 
whether it was you guys from, uh, you know, your, your staff out there, the PR staff, or whether it was Greek and the guys, um, you know, that were a part of that training room staff or Rich Tootin, part of the, the strength and conditioning or Ross Kirk or Kirkab, uh, you know, the field right. staff. Like I, I, I wanted, Oh, Doug West in the equipment room. All those guys were really important to me. And I was like, it's my responsibility to play for the organization for that's what they pay me to do. And so I want to play. And, um, and it was, it, there was a badge of honor there for me is, is to say, Hey man, I, anybody can play when they feel good. I never feel good. And I'm going to go out and not only play, but I'm going to play well, mm-hmm. um, feeling like garbage. And so that was just a really important part for me, for my career and not to impress anybody or not to, you know, not to have any accolades poured upon myself. It was really just kind of the way I felt about, um, our football team and, and the, the people that I played with and the people that I played for. That's that's so rare, and it's exactly the way you want to draw it up. Now, that answer is actually the answer to the next question, but maybe you can still not embellish it, but just I don't think you need to embellish this, but in case we haven't grossed out fans who are listening quite enough, and you've got to know where this is heading, uh, I remember when you had the kidney stone and we're going to play the Monday night game, Uh and the doctor said, it'll pass. It'll pass like on Tuesday, or we can go in and take it out. Right. Why don't you explain that situation? Yeah, well, I mean, I got to the point where I, I uh, my parents were actually in town uh, for the game, for the Monday night game. And um, I woke up Sunday morning at like 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was dying. Um, absolutely, absolutely dying. And, um, and, you know, my wife, this is my wife. She's so gentle and tender. Because I had suffered with kidney stones before, she's like, "Go downstairs and try to sleep it off." <laughs> you know? So I'm like, "Okay." So I go down on the couch and I and I, my my six o'clock rolls around. I go, "You got to take me to the hospital." So I would go to the hospital. We check in the hospital, um, get a hold of Greek, and I, I spend the rest of the day in the hospital. And they're like, "Hey, listen, this thing is so big, it's not moving." You know, blah blah blah. Um, if you have any chance of yeah, playing, you know, it's we- so big. Means like yeah. the size of a pencil lid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're just like, I don't know that you're going to pass this. So if you have any chance of, of playing, we're going to have to go in and take it. And so I was like, all right, well, let's go in and take it. So, you know, they will me down to surgery. By, by now, it's like literally it's, it's 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night uh, when they're willing me into surgery. And literally, so they will me into surgery. They've had the, they've had the, they've had the pre-evening meal. Yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been on morphine all day long and fluids trying to pass the stone. I can't pass it. So they wheel me down there. They prep me for surgery. They literally, you know, every person in there is a nurse and, you know, and, and at one point the scrub, the lady goes, I'll be your scrub down nurse. Are you allergic to iodine or benadine? And I was just like, you're going to, I took, turned to the uh, anesthesiologist who was also a woman and said, you're going to have to knock me out here. Right. So, um, anyhow, um, so I get scrubbed down and, uh, and I have the surgery, um, and they, they take the kidney stone out. Well, they, you know, they go through your stuff, they go through your junk and they yeah, reach through your I bladder know. and it's a nasty procedure. Right. So I finally wake up in, in, uh, post, uh, you know, in the, in, in post-op and, uh, I literally have to take a, a morphine shot to urinate cause it's just so, it's so painful. So anyhow, um, I go through the night like that. I check out of the hospital, um, like 11 o'clock, uh, 12 o'clock noon. I roll out to, uh, to pregame meal. 
I go to the pregame meal. I have a, a couple pieces of toast. Then I drive down to the stadium and um, and start against the Raiders, and uh, we beat them 27 to nothing on Monday Night Football. So um, it was, you know, it was quite the adventure to be sure. But again, it's one of those things where it was important to me yeah. to start every game and to and to you know and to be be a guy that was reliable and that you could count on. Now the next week we had we were not on Monday Night Football, but we had the number one crew again. And I remember when they did the production meetings, they asked for you. And uh, they asked you specifically, why would you do this? I mean, it's going to pass. You're in the hospital. Why would you do the surgery? And and you gave the same answer that you just gave a few minutes ago here, that, you know, you, you had to set a tone. Right. Oh, God, Mark. That was <laughs> And, you know, well, I've always said you might, people, you might You might call it stupidity, but, yeah, it was, uh, it well, was just I've, important I've to me. Said, yeah, when, you know, I've always thought it's amusing when they see a baseball player took a swing and he's got a little twins we may sit him down for three days and i said right. i got a guy standing in a urinal uh passing blood you know i mean the guys next to him uh it's kind of hard to say yeah my my toe hurts a little bit when the guy next to you is urinating blood I mean, right. you know uh but yeah but you know it's it's amazing the effect guys and we had a a, a team full of players like that team. not just yes. They're just not me, but you know, a guy like Rod Smith, who who you know never missed any time and never missed a workout, and and um, you know we had guys, we had we just had guys where TD has a migraine in that Super Bowl and comes back to play, you know, and Mike is like, hey, go out there, we just need you. I can't see, you don't need to see. Just they won't believe the fake if you don't run it, you know. Like we had guys that were willing to. That was our team. All the guys were willing to sacrifice that way. Yeah, you know that Super Bowl game. Uh, and as you know, I mean, something happens, and the PR guy immediately gets phone calls. How how mm-hmm. bad the injury or whatever. Well, TD comes out of the game. I call Greek, and Greek says, "Yeah, he's got a migraine, but he'll be back." And I thought, now, do I really want to tell the world that TD's got a migraine? Right. And he said he'll be back. I said, "You sure he'll be back?" He said, "Yeah, he'll be back." I said, "Does he have anything else besides a migraine?" And he said, "Well, he got kicked in the head." So I said, thanks a lot. And I called the league and I called the network and I said, Terrell Davis got kicked in the head. He'll definitely return. And so that bought us probably till the start of the third quarter when Jim Gray came on and said, oh, my God, it's a migraine. But by then, literally, there's TD running into the field. But, uh, boy, that team was that was a grim team. That was a tough team to beat. You mentioned a little while ago that your parents were down for the game. I often think of your dad. Of all the, your dad was a physical specimen. Is he yeah. still uh, in good health, Mark? He's yeah. He's still he's still an absolute freak show, Jim. Uh, that guy, that guy on his 78th birthday benched 300 pounds. He'll turn he'll turn 81 uh, in August. And uh, people think when we're together, we're brothers. He's he's 106 oh, he's foot, 185 pounds, and, and still. He, Go ahead. Yeah, he's six foot, 180 pounds, and still, I mean, you know, he's still he's still got muscles. I mean, he's like he work he he works out all the time. I mean, he's just the guy is an absolute he's an absolute freak show. You know, all my college teammates, and it's funny, all my college teammates. My, I brought my dad down to Seattle this year. I was calling um, Baltimore at Seattle, 
And so I brought my dad down to spend the weekend with us as we're going out to dinners and going to meet with, you know, uh, John Harbaugh and the Baltimore Ravens. And my dad sat in all the production meetings and it was, we had a hoop, man. We had a, a blast. I actually gave him my boards for Christmas, had them framed. So my boards oh, cool. of that game, you know, that I write, um, mm-hmm. I, I wrote a little inscription to my father and had them framed. And that was his Christmas gift, um, which, you know, he proudly displays in his office. But, you know, it was it was a really cool time. But all my college teammates, you know, most of them live in Seattle area. And so we all got together for a big lunch um, Saturday afternoon. And um, and it was so cool. All my buddies call them poolside because no matter what we were doing when we were playing in college, you could always catch my dad at the at the pool doing push-ups and exercising. Like, he was always yeah. doing something. And so his nickname is Poolside, and that's how all my college buddies refer to my father. Your dad reminds me of a former Stanford athlete who won an Oscar, Jack Palance. And uh, yeah. he was on stage, he did one-handed. He said, ah, you know, he said, makes a little remark about being able to throw Billy Crystal through the wall or something. And then he got down and did one-handed push-ups. And that's yeah. kind of how uh, you remember. <laughs> exactly. Now, exactly. He is. Uh, he is that. He's got that kind of, um, just that kind of like work ethic, and and he's still like my dad will be like I said he'll be eighty one in August. You could drive up to my dad's house in the wintertime, and he'll be standing on the roof shoveling four foot of snow off the eaves of the roof. Mm-hmm. Like he he is still, um, you know he's a he's I used to, I've always called him a perpetual motion machine. So uh, he's a specimen, and, and I tell you what, it's a testament to continuing to keep moving regardless of what's going on. Yeah, Just move. Right. Um, now, you've had a great post-career career in the media, and some people wouldn't know this, but during all of our open locker room days, your locker, that was like a buzzing point. Every, all the media congregated around your locker. Once in a while, one of them was naive enough to think that they were doing an interview and they'd bring out a camera, and all the rest of them would laugh at him and say, put that away, put that away. But everybody loved to be around you. However, we had the Alex rule. Tell me a little right. bit about that and uh, just the whole thing. Yeah, well, it, it's funny because I and still get people... Of, a lot of listeners don't know who Alex is. Yeah, well, Alex Gibbs was the O-line coach, and it was against the rules for any of us O-linemen to get quoted in the paper or quoted, you know, do interviews. Because um, if you did, it was a big fine. And so it became this game, this kangaroo court game of trying to find guys and, and um, you know, and trying to – and it would be funny. It would be like we go back to New England where Tommy Nalen was from, you know, and uh, Tommy Nealon grew up in Foxborough, Massachusetts. So Tommy would sneak off after after the game and talk to the Foxborough paper, right? He'd go around the corner, back behind the buses, you know, oh, where nobody could paper. see him. Yeah, yeah, and, and just talk to the, the Foxborough News or whatever the paper was, right? And then Alex would have, like, he'd have spies all over the country. And, and all of a sudden, like on a Wednesday, we'd have all of Tommy's quotes, and it was like $50 every time you got quoted. And he had the whole article. It was just an expose on Tom Nailing being from Foxborough High School, coming out and starting for the Broncos and being a Pro Bowl player. And he had, you know, Alex would have every quote highlighted. And he'd just be like, there's 50, there's 100, there's 50, there's 200. You know, and we'd go through it and it would be hilarious. And he'd have somebody send it to him from Foxborough. Um, and so th- it was this this game that we played and it was funny. And I, it's funny because, 
to this day, you know, I mean, I've had a 20-year career now in the media with 16 years at ESPN, the last, uh, starting in my fourth year at Fox, calling games, being a studio analyst, you know, talking about the game that I love, the NFL. And um, and people are like, you're such a hypocrite. You didn't even talk to reporters. I'm like, no, 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 you've got that wrong. I talk to reporters every day. You just couldn't quote me. I was like, right. Adam Schefter and I were thick as thieves, still are. We're, we're really good buddies. But, um, I, you know, I'm not going to give you – like, I'm not going to give him things to – to quote, so that was kind of how we played the game. It was a, it was a fun. It, it, it was fun. It was lighthearted, and we were, you know, we were like you said. There was always a group of reporters that were congregated around the whole offensive line area. Myself and all the guys there, and we talked to them every day. It's just like you can't quote me. You know, tell so you, it was just part of the I game that, up, that made it fun. I had to concoct so many rationales and so many reasons. Because every now and then I get a call from the league office. Is it true your offensive line doesn't talk? No, what are you talking about? Uh, Zimmerman did his thing yesterday. Then he got paid for on Urban Joe or whatever. <laughs> I mean, you know, something that was a 40-second thing. I'd say, no, are you kidding? So-and-so was doing something extensive just two days ago. But you just fought the battle as well you could. However, now you'll remember this. We're going to play Super Bowl 32. NBC's doing the game. Uh-huh. They got to come out of. They got they got thirty one on ones to do. They got a list on top of a list for a ten hour pregame show. Paul McGuire says, "I'll take the offensive line. Take the offensive line. They don't even talk." Do you remember this when he said, "We're all going to go to Brooks Steakhouse for dinner, and I'll buy the whole deal, but I gotta I got a camera at the corner of the room, and I gotta sit each one of you guys down." Do you remember doing that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we sung like great. canaries, too. Like, you know, oh, you, you sung like canaries. Yeah, yeah, we had a, there's, a, there's a price, and, and that price was, you know, steak dinners and, and uh, you know, bottles of wine were flown. Wine, and, uh, and, <laughs> yeah, so we had, you know, we had a price and, uh, and sat down with Paul McGuire. We had a great time. It was a blast. Um, One of the best. Yeah, it was it was tremendous. I think Phil Sims came as well, and I think he was working that at the time. But it was we just had a blast doing it. So it was um, again, it was a game, and like I said, we had great relationships with all the beat writers, all the guys who covered the Broncos, mm-hmm. um, they and they got it. They they understood. They, they got, got it. it. They knew you were trying to do something. You were yeah, and they knew we were around. trying to just be together, you know, and that we had that yeah. bond together. Uh, do you remember who the last guy in the restaurant was for that dinner? Because I do. No, I have no idea. Well, it was Nayland. He was the first guy there. He's sitting in the parking lot, but he thought it's a scam. This is a scam <laughs> on me. So he watches one guy go in. Guy doesn't come out. He watches another guy go in. Guy doesn't come out. He watches me go in. Everybody goes in. Nobody comes out. Finally, like, you know, finally, if say the dinner was 7 o'clock, 7.15, he comes in. And kind of does the thing, looking to the left, looking to the right. Everybody in the world is toasting and they're having a wonderful time. Glasses of wine. Ah, ha, ha, ha. And Nayland sat in the corner, did his interview with Paul McGuire. That was a great night. And I got to say, a brilliant moment by Paul McGuire. Because it was going to be hard to bend you guys. It was going to be hard to get just that very stiff, rigid interview, uh, you know, somewhere on, on the facility. Yeah, but yeah, but there's no question it was it was like you said it was a brilliant move by Paul McGuire to uh, you know to get us right where uh, the right where we all have the weakness which was the uh, the stomach right have the food and 
and and we were all on it together. So if you know if any of us That's were going right. to get fined, we were all going to get fined. So at that point, That's we're right. just like, all right, let's roll. That was great. Now, what do you think of the Redskins' name change? Oh, I'm fine. Like I'm fine with it, and I've been fine with it for years. You know, I did seven years ago or so. I did a a deal for I don't know one of the networks, whether it was CNN or MSNBC. You know, because every couple of years it comes up and becomes a big deal. Oh, yeah. and, 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 you know, and, and so this was years and years ago. I drove down to a studio on a Sunday morning. It was like meet the press yeah. or something, you know. And and I just have always been – I've always been, one, the nickname. Like, to me, the, I'll, I'll take it for us, the Broncos, man. The, it's not about the nickname. It's about the spirit of the organization. And so, to me, the Broncos is not about, you know, a horse. It is, it is Pat Bowen. It is – uh, Mike Shanahan. It is, you know, it is you, Sacco. It's Greek. It is the players. It's John Elway. It's the guys. Right. That's that to me is what makes the organization. So, like the 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 nickname, the Redskins. That like I don't sit there and and pine over. Oh my gosh, the the history or the heritage or whatever. It doesn't matter because that's not the history of the heritage to me. It's it's the players. It's you know, it's the Bobby Mitchells and it's the Charlie Taylors and it's Joe Gibbs right. and it's George Allen and and it's all the people that made that organization great and it's all the community service that they've done and everything else. So the nickname to me is just a nickname. It really doesn't it doesn't doesn't mean anything. So I've never been like you know, people always ask me about winning a Super Bowl and what's that Super Bowl like. And I look at that Super Bowl ring and I don't think, wow, look at this thing is worth whatever it's worth or whatever. I think about the relationships and the sacrifices right. that were made. That's what it means to me. So um, the nickname to me was never a big deal. Whether they call it the Red Tails or the Red Hawks or the Red Wolves or the you know the Hogs or whatever they decide to tell, like I'll embrace it and say that's good. It's a good thing. And and finally, I'll say this. You know, as we progress and as things change and as we, you know, become more enlightened and become more educated, um, a person's or a group of person's ethnicity probably shouldn't be a nickname. And, you know, I get a lot of people go, well, where do we end? If it's the Redskins, then what's next? You know, I think it's pretty easy if you're using the ethnicity of a people as your as your nickname. That's probably wrong. And it's probably a pretty easy thing to change to, you know, the Red Hawks and we move forward, right? And and there's a big difference between the Chiefs and, uh, I mean, when have you ever heard the term Redskin in the movies? It's always a pejorative. Here comes the Redskins. That's that's not good. That doesn't mean they're coming for tea and crumpets. By the way, it's amazing. Like, half of our society is male. Half is female. Roughly. Ha. Think of all the women who gave up one of the most significant things in the world when they got married. They changed their names. We may not even think of it as males, but I mean, most of our wives are going by a name that was not them. They changed their name. Uh, And that's that's a remarkable, incredible thing. And, um, you know, the, the, the Washington franchise will move on and they'll have a new name and it'll be great. I, I, yeah, I completely concur, you know, and, and, you know, I just, I just think that you know, there will always be people, no matter, you know, no matter what you do, you'll always have people that wake up every morning looking to be, you know, angry about something or upset angry, about something. Angry. You gotta get angry. Yeah. And, and you'll just never, you'll just never satisfy those people, Nothing. you know, I mean, um, um, so I don't worry about those people. 
No. Now, you were on the best offensive line, on the best team, with the best coach in Broncos history, and Mike Shanahan recently went into the um, ring of fame. Tell me a little bit about Mike's intensity. Then I've got a Mark Schlereth story to add on to that. Yeah, well, Mike was – like, Mike was – I think the thing that really set Mike apart as a coach is that, um, well, there's a, there's a bunch of things that set him apart. First off, like I had failed before I got here. I had failed three physicals. I failed a physical in Chicago, physical in Indianapolis, a physical in Atlanta. So I was really nervous when I took this physical here, and the doctors really didn't even look at me. And, you know, come to find out, Mike, Mike Shanham was the doctor that passed me. He's like, he's passing regardless, so, you know, you guys can look at him, but whatever. So I owe Mike a debt of gratitude because, uh, you know, my career would have probably ended had it not been for Mike. But the thing about Mike that was was so good is that he could devise a game plan and he could tell you, here's what we're going to do. Here's how they're going to react to this formation or to this, you know, to this look. This is what we're going to do. And this is what's going to happen. And it pretty much it pretty much worked out the way he said every time and so there was so much confidence when you go into any game plan so i'll give you a for instance we're playing super bowl 32 against the green bay packers and we're 13 point underdogs and when we put the game plan together mike shanahan is like listen what's that biggest underdog for a winner in the super bowl since namath and the jets yes exactly so mike shannon is like well here's what we're going to do guys we're going to run um, we're going to, we're going to run our offense out of base and we're going to get into slot. So what that means, Jim, is if you're in a right-handed formation, the tight ends on the right-handed side, on the right side, the Z receiver, which would be Eddie McCaffrey, he'll come over to the left and he'll get in slot. So it would be, uh, Rod Smith outside, Eddie in the slot, and then, you know, your left tackle, and then you'd have your tight end on the right, and you would have, you know, fullback Howard Griffith, and, and you'd have your tailback Terrell Davis. And he goes, the way they operate is anytime you get into slot, he's like the outside weak side linebacker basically goes out, and he gets, he widens. And he actually kind of exchanges responsibilities with the safety, which was Leroy Butler. And Leroy Butler actually plays the will he actually comes screaming down, and he's into run support. And their linebacker, Brian Williams, who's a skinny guy who could really run, he actually exchanges and plays safety. And he goes, this is like 100%. And he's showing us the film. And he's showing us time and time again where Leroy Butler is every time run away uh, in a slot formation, he makes every tackle in the backfield. Minus four, minus two, minus three, minus four, minus two, minus four. So he goes, we're going to get into this formation. And the offensive line, you're not going to go to Brian Williams, which would be your normal responsibility. You're going to scoop on the backside. So that's you, Stink, and you, Gary Zimmerman, to the safety, Leroy Butler. Eddie Mack, you've got Brian Williams because he's in coverage anyhow. And literally, the first time we line up and we do it, Sacco, TD runs one for like 14 yards. Mm-hmm. And and we're just like, oh, we're walking back to hell going, we got him. Like, we got him. And it was exactly the way Mike showed us all week. This is what's going to happen. I guarantee you 100% this is the way they're going to react. This is what's going to happen. And we're absolutely going to eviscerate this team. 
And sure enough, man, one after the other, every time we got in the formation, we just lit them up on cutback runs. Um, and they had no answer for it. And, and those are the things that Mike consistently did week in and week out that you just were like, you're in the game going, these guys don't have a chance. Our coaching staff is that good. Yeah. I remember telling NFL people during the week when they said, boy, we hope it's a good rating. We hope you can stay close to them. And I probably shouldn't have, but I said, actually, we're going to go to the Green Bay Packers like grain through a goose. And I yeah. think they thought I was just kidding. They thought, you know, they just laughed. I thought, whatever. It, it's, it's like that time when CU was going to play Nebraska, and they asked the coach uh, what the game plan was, and he said, hey, diddle, diddle, we're going to run up the middle. And afterwards, yeah. the, the media said, we're so shocked. He said, I told you the game plan, didn't I? But, yeah. uh, but now one time I said to you, I said, Mark, what would it be like? You know, I know that Mike sometimes calls a guy out on a Monday and sometimes mm. could eviscerate the guy. I said, what would it be like? And, and you told me, Sock, I don't even appreciate you putting that thought into my mind. You said, I would do anything on Sunday to avoid that other thing happening on Monday. Oh, and we yeah, have a whole ball club, though, of teams like, you know, I told Mike once, we won those Super Bowls 40 seconds at a time. This yeah. is the next play. And it's 100% execution on this play. Now it's the next play. Only Mike wasn't working one at a time. He's like 19 plays ahead or something. Yeah, there, there, is, there is no question. And you did not want that wrath. There is no – you know, here, here's the thing about, about coaches. And I think this is interesting, and, and Mike epitomized this for me, is that – you want, you know, a, 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 there's, there's two types of fear. There's the biblical sense of fear, you know, the, the fear of God, which means the awesome reverence. Like you have a fear of Mike Shanahan because there's awesome reverence there. You know, he's in charge, you know, he's fair, you know, he'll cut you in a heartbeat if you don't do what you're asked to do. Um, but you know, he's going to give you a chance to win. So there was that awesome reverence for him, but there was also that fear that he was, he didn't suffer fools. And like, if you're a guy who can't hack it mentally, if you can't keep up, you don't get to play for Mike Shanahan. So you better be physical. You better be able to do your job physically. But most importantly, you best not screw up mentally because you screw up mentally and and you and you're a mistake repeater. You make the same mistake over and over. He will fire you without even thinking about it. Without even thinking about it. Uh, Patrick Smythe often references this to me that there were many times if, if his secretary, the great Cindy Lowe, would call and say, Jim, Mike would like to see you. I mean, I got up, and I'm not kidding you, Mark. If you could imagine this, you'll laugh. But I would run down the hall. Oh, yeah. Patrick oh, would yeah. Say, you know, like finance people or whatever, IT people said, Jim's got a tie on. He's a 55-year-old guy. What the heck is he doing running down the hall? But right. you know what? Mike appreciated the fact that if he said he wanted to see me, I didn't say I got to pick my teeth first or anything. I'm down in Mike's office now. and uh, I have great respect for that whole thing. Hey, let me ask you this. You've been so accomplished. Your son has been a successful pitcher, and you've got a daughter who was into, like, whether, forgive me, modeling or television. How are they mm-hmm. both doing? Uh, everybody's doing good. Our family's great. Daniel is, is still pitching. He's 34 years old. He's not with a team right now, but – um, I kind of represent him. I'm kind of his agent. Um, he and I both. So, um, he's actually somehow 
Jim found the fountain of, the, of youth, and um, he he is as good as he's ever been. Um, just throwing absolute gas. I mean, sitting in bullpens at 95 miles an hour, um, and has one of the best curveballs in in you know in Major League Baseball or in baseball in general. So um, right now it's kind of a strange season with his COVID 19. Yeah, his right. stuff is so good that he would you know there's no question. I've had the Yankees and the Boston Red Sox and the Houston Astros. I've talked to. I mean, I've been talking to all these teams. They would sign him a heartbeat if it was a normal year, but because they can only keep 60 and they're trying to keep some of their young prospects, um, there's not a lot of room um, on anybody's roster right now. So what we're doing right now is he's just staying in shape and he's continuing to throw. And we've got three or four teams that have said, Hey, listen, when we get into the season and we have an injury or we have somebody that tests positive for COVID and has to sit down, just be ready. Because um, if we've got a couple of young guys that we don't think can, that can you know get major league outs yet um we will call so that's kind of what we're doing we're also talking to taiwan uh the taiwan baseball uh professional baseball league as well as the uh korean the kbo right now so i, I think something's going to shake loose here in a in the next I, I couple of so. weeks i hope he gets a chance to continue because yeah you know the, the, the crazy thing is is he had like his father he had a, a several years there where he's hanging on but he just couldn't consistently stay healthy and he has somehow found his health again, and now once he found his health again, his velocity came back. I mean, his stuff yeah. is nasty, so we'll see what happens. And both of my daughters are doing great. Um, you know, my youngest used to come over all the time to the facility. You'll remember Avery coming all the time, and mm-hmm. she used to call Steve Antonopoulos Greek. She called him Greekiaki, and she used to come over when she was little, <laughs> like three years old, and Greek would tape her ankles, and she'd leave them taped for like two days before we finally said, "Hey, baby, we gotta cut. We gotta cut this tape off because uh, you gotta, you know, you gotta take a bath." <laughs> I remember you having her around with you, and uh, and just just part of the deal. That was yeah. a great, great can actually be an under undervalued word. This team had forty six wins in a three year period which even today is still tied with the Patriots for the most in history, 46 wins and two Super Bowl championships. Denver and the Patriots each have done that. Went undefeated for a calendar year. Boy, that may not seem hard until you go out there and try to do it. This was a wild right. ball club. Yeah, it was a it was a great run, and those were great teams. And, you know, we were talking about Mike Shanahan, and one thing about him is, is demanding as, as Mike was is he was very fair. And I always used to be kind of the liaison between the locker room and Mike. And there were times where coaches would say, hey, could you talk to Mike about, like, they would come to me yeah, and go, can you go talk to Mike about, about this? Or can you go? And here's the cool thing is that it didn't matter where it came from. If it was a good idea and it made sense, Mike would implement it. And so, yeah. you know, I brought, I brought breakfast at the, at the facility. That was my idea. I went to Mike and said, you need to start serving breakfast. And, you know, at first, Mike just looked at me. He paid for it the first year. Yes. And first thing he looked at me is like, okay. You're like, why? And I go, because I'm in here every morning at five rehabbing. And then I'm in watching film at seven. And I go, it's hard to get these young guys that don't know what they're looking at to come watch film. And I go, but if there was breakfast being served, I go, I'm going to get not only my two eyes and, you know, Dave Dizinfante would be in there and, and Zim would be in there, but now I'm going to get all your young players are going to get to see what we're looking at. 
and they're going to learn how to study film. And I said, you know, four eyes are better than two, and eight eyes are better than four, and 16 eyes are better than eight. And I go, this is going to make a huge difference. And it was such a bonding factor for us. Every mm-hmm. morning, we're having okay. oatmeal. Yes. We're watching film together. We're breaking it down. Go, oh, hey, rewind that. Do you see that guy over there, Zim? You see what he was doing there? You know, and it was amazing. You know, Tony Jones, Tony Jones, Tony, look at this. It was amazing how much more connected we were as a group. And it showed every Sunday. It certainly did. Um, Derek Lavelle, once upon a time, but he's had some rough times since then. Hopefully he'll be okay. But mm-hmm. Derek, once walking up the field, said to NFL Films, you know, it ain't that easy being a champion. It's hard being a champion. We just make it look easy. You're right. And uh, yeah. you're part of that, Mark. I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of a busy schedule and a very successful schedule to talk to me and to talk to us. Uh, I'm honored to have uh, known you and been influenced by you, Mark. Uh, likewise, Sako. I love you, man. It uh, was a great uh, for me. It was a great six-year run, man. And appreciate everything that uh, that you meant to that organization. You're a big part of all those championships. A big part of, of uh, the Denver Broncos. So thank you so much, man. And thank you, like all of all of you, yourself and Greek, and all the people in the training room and the equipment room, and all the people, and obviously all the fans out there. But I came here as a cast off from Washington who was told you can't play anymore. We don't want you and was accepted with open arms and got to be a part of something really special. So thank you for all that you've done for me and my family. Mark Schlereth, Broncos country throwback. Thank you, Mark. You got it. That was Jim Sakamano's conversation with Mark Schlereth, a pro bowler in Denver, spent the final six seasons of his career with the Broncos. So uh, not sure we've had better stories so far than we just got from Mark Schlereth. Yeah, we know that uh, Schlereth is obviously one of the best storytellers. Listening to him uh, on his morning show on 104.3 The Fan every morning. But nobody really pulls these stories out quite like Jim Sakamano. He has relationships with all these great former players. And that's why Broncos Country Throwback is a great podcast. Make sure you subscribe and you can find it anywhere you find any of your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. So make sure you go ahead and subscribe. We'll be back next week with another member of the Broncos alumni. Until then, for Jim Sakamano and Eric Dalala, I'm Phil Milani. This has been Broncos Country Throwback.